Welcome to the Pooch Parenting Podcast, a podcast for parents with dogs. I'm Michelle Stern, a certified professional dog trainer, mom, and former teacher. Living with kids and dogs at the same time can feel like a circus. I know because I lived it too. Join us as we interview a variety of experts and parents to discuss topics that will make parenting with dogs easier, safer, and less chaotic. Also, you can love living with your dog again. I'll always keep it real, which might even mean that you hear the messiness of life in the background on occasion, but at least you know you're not alone. In all of my years as a dog and child specialist, I have rarely come across anyone who tries to support families in getting their dogs ready for a new baby if they're not pregnant. And as an adoptive parent myself, I think that it's really important that we support families who are growing in any number of ways because families can grow traditionally or not. I want all of my people to feel seen. In today's episode, I interview an adoption expert so that we can set expectations to help every family succeed. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Chris. I am so excited that you agreed to be with us here today. Hi, Michelle. I am, I'm excited too. I think this is going to be really fun. Well, I am thrilled to be talking about adoption and not a dog adoption, but human adoption. Mm -hmm. And often in the dog world, when people are talking about adopting something, it's often about rescuing a dog from a shelter. Mm -hmm. But in this case, we're going to be talking about how to support parents as they bring a new child into their family, whether that's uh, infant through adoption, an older child, any age child, mm-hmm. um, whether it's through the foster system, whether it's, it doesn't really matter, but this is bringing in a child um, that you have not carried yourself. And there are oftentimes a lot of questions that I get from people about how to prepare your dog for the sudden appearance of a new human in the family, especially when the dog hasn't seen any biological changes in the parents. I know from personal experience, because one of my children is adopted, that I probably had hormone changes or at least emotional changes throughout the process of our adoption. But it's different than a biological pregnancy where there's a precise start and a precise end. It's much more confusing. It's the timeline shifts and changes based on who's doing the paperwork. And Mm -hmm. you just never know Mm -hmm. when you'll be chosen and all of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, But let's, I'm going to have you introduce yourself and, um, and then we'll dive in and talk about how we can support families through this process. Great. Great. My name is Chris Freark and I am a psychologist and a family therapist. I am a, um, I've done research on adoption and I love to do adoption education. I am also an adoptive mom and a stepmom. So I have a lot of experience from many different angles on the process of family blending new members in. And, um, and we also have had dogs and more recently cats. Um, but I know that when, I mean, as a family therapist, I always think of the family as a team. And when you integrate a new member to the team, everybody has to make adjustments. Everybody's going to shift. And If you can't, the most fun thing about being a family therapist is figuring out how to 
get everybody on board of thinking of themselves as a team and the special assets that each team member brings, as well as the challenges that any of them might have. And there are multiple challenges with adoption, as, as with having a child born into your family, because so much changes and, and everybody has needs and everybody has to pitch in and you're, and you're getting to know each other in a, in a new way. So um, I, I, I love the topic and I have to say that until I heard about you, I, I have worked with adoptive families around pets, but I have never had anybody come to me and say, we're having trouble integrating our human and canine members. And I don't think I've ever had anybody come and say that the topic of pets came up in the process of their home study or um, I, I, it's interesting to me to reflect back on that because I've got mm -hmm. a lot of adoptive families, you know, always in the back of my head or the front of my head. And, um, and I always, when I'm working with families, I always ask about the pets when I, you know, in figuring out, okay, how am I going to engage this family who, when they come to my office are stressed or they wouldn't be coming to me. I always want to know who's who of non-human nature is in the family and what are the reputations of those those members of the team, because pets can soothe, um, pets can enliven, um, and pets can stress family other family members. Uh -huh. So I just I love the topic. I love what. You well, do. it's so interesting what you said that it very rarely comes up in conversation, and I. I think that that is a symptom of people um, feeling unsure and feeling ashamed that mm -hmm. their pet is an issue because social mm -hmm. media would have you believe that pets are only a source of joy and humor mm -hmm. um, and maybe sadness when they die, but not that the pet is a source of extreme stress or anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so I find that very rarely will anyone ask for support or ask for advice unless they feel that perhaps safety is an issue or unless someone like me brings it up where I'm really putting it in the forefront of their mind and saying, I will not judge you if you are overwhelmed and you are questioning whether or not you made a mistake by mm -hmm. blending animals and children or whatever your situation might be. I'm not going to judge you for that. And I'll help you find relief, whether it's to try to modify the dog's behavior within the context of your family dynamic, or perhaps we decide that the dog might even be happier living somewhere else. Because as you know, with children, same is true with dogs that everybody has their own set of physiological mental needs that mm -hmm. are that have to be met and so if a dog is sound sensitive and you have a child that has noisy rages I'll mm -hmm. use that as an example mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. that has a laughter that never stops which is really kind of a gift but that still could cause undue stress to a dog who is sensitive to mm -hmm. sound and that's just a simple example but that's a dog that's not necessarily in distress per se, but mm -hmm. it's a dog that is finding itself in an uncomfortable environment for 
it to be relaxed and be its best doggy self. Right. And so um, I like that you talk about having everybody be a team and being integrated. Um, you mentioned the home study thing. Nobody asked me, um, you know, about our dogs or our dog situation. I mean, when they came to the house, they saw the dog mm-hmm. because the dog was there and there's like a water bowl and stuff like that. But nobody made a point of saying, I remember specifically during the home study, they were like, okay, your knives have to be way up high and out of reach and your medication has to be locked away and all those kinds of things. But they never commented on the water bowl being a hazard, which of course it is. But of course my son wasn't home yet. It wasn't, it was a non-issue at the time, but you know, I wouldn't have thought of that back then because I didn't know then what I know now that little silly, ridiculous things like a dog water bowl can be a hazard. Hmm. It could be a drowning hazard for a child. It could be a slipping hazard for you because kids love to splash and then the floor gets slippery and someone can fall. Um, The dog bed that has been in your family room forever so your whole family can relax in the same space can become a hazard from the standpoint of the fact that if you're not aware of it and you're toddler crawls over to the dog bed, the dog can find Mm. that unpleasant. They can become protective of it. Or I have an older dog who does not like being startled awake. I don't know how she'll act if a toddler sneaks over and scares her half to death when she wakes up, you know, by touching her or whatever. And that could result in a bite to a child. And I don't think that any home study person, social worker that we worked with was even aware that those were potential problems. I've, I've helped doulas with this and midwives Mm -hmm. a little bit Mm -hmm. with this um, Mm -hmm. because they're in the home. A lot of the time, sometimes people are doing home births or maybe it's a postpartum doula who's in the home. um, And I'm trying to teach them how to read body language and understand, Mm -hmm. oh, that's Mm -hmm. a red flag. We probably should get help for that. But I don't really think it's a topic that is discussed. Mm -hmm. And I think it should be. Well, and but when I think about it now, I think also if it was discussed, it would become likely become another thing that the expectant adoptive parents would get stressed about <laughs> because you're, there is already such a feeling of being evaluated. Am I, are we going to measure <laughs> up? Are we going to be good parents? That if, if then the question is, is your kid going to be safe with your dog? then I just can see people, their anxiety going in, you know, in a completely new direction. So, but I mean, definitely preparation is better than being surprised by things. And to some extent, there's more that's unexpected in it. I mean, definitely the schedule is unpredictable. I mean, I think that adoptive parents often underestimate their resilience and their tolerance of uncertainty that came out of the process of adopting. And um, it's it's huge. I mean, uh, parents who had to work to become parents are documentably more invested in parenting. Uh, they take things seriously, they reflect a lot, and hopefully they reflect without the baggage of worry that is all too common for adoptive families because, and I was thinking when you were talking about how 
parents are hesitant to mention that they're struggling with their dog. Adoptive parents are hesitant to mention that they're struggling with their kids because they instinctively kind of take it as a reflection on them, their parenting, or that, oh my gosh, you know, this is, I mean, most, most adoptive parents live with a worry that, that their child might not be well adjusted and happy. Mm-hmm. And there are assumptions and negative stereotypes about adoption that even though they've improved to some extent, are still there. And they, and I think that adoptive parents need to feel prepared to acknowledge those with their kids and counter them, you know, to, to, um, to recognize that kids pick up on things that people project onto them. And there's no reason that those projections have to be accurate about them. Um, So the themes that you talk about in terms of preparation and proactivity are really important for adopt and communication and sensing nonverbals are really important for adoptive families, uh, you know, uh, and their pets, but also beyond, above and beyond their pets. because it's complex. I really love what you're saying. I, I do agree. I think when I reflect back to when my son was little, um, there's a lot of pressure you put on yourself to compensate, I think for challenges that come up and you worry what people might be thinking and you put that on yourself um, I'm trying to think if I did that differently with my son and my daughter. They were just entirely different people. So I think the experience parenting each of them was so different that I don't know that I can compare necessarily the guilt that I put on myself, but it's it's significant either way. I mean, no matter how you're parenting, um, if you're invested, which any good parent should be, no matter where your child came from, mm-hmm. um, you will be reflective and you will think about how to do better, how to always do better. Right. But I do wish that there was less of a stigma in terms of talking about any challenges that you're facing, because I felt very alone during some of my struggles because Mm -hmm. I didn't know anyone else at the time who had adopted a child. And I don't even know, trying to think if Facebook was a thing when he was really Mm -hmm. little, maybe, Maybe mm-hmm. not, but not like it is now. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't like I could join groups and you know c- collaborate and talk with people and strategize and things like that. Um, right. So it's hard. It's really hard. And then you may pick up a book, but you may not resonate with what that author has to say. And then that might, yes. might make you be even more critical of yourself. So before we started recording, you mentioned something, and I would love to ask you to dive into this a little bit more. And forgive me, listeners and people who hear this, if you think it doesn't relate to dogs, but I really think it does because I think parenting in general, you're parenting dogs, you're parenting kids, whatever you're parenting, a lot of these feelings that you're encountering are the same. So I do think that this relates to both. And also if you have a dog and an adopted child, you still have to process um, 
all of these experiences because I think one will influence the other. That for example, if I'm feeling triggered about something that my dog did, I may unintentionally mm-hmm. take that out on my child or vice versa. Mm-hmm. I may not be mm-hmm. as patient with my dog because I'm frustrated with what happened with my child. But what we were talking about before is that there are there are some common things that people think they know, and I'm putting no in air quotes, you can see that, mm-hmm. but they're not true. So they're sort of untruths about adopted children and about parenting adopted children. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that they're myths necessarily, maybe they're misunderstandings, but I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about maybe some mindset things that you wish that people could maybe consider so that they could sure. feel better sure. in the whole sure. process. So there, so most of the research about adoption started out coming from practicing clinicians, um, psychiatrists, psychologists, and the literature around adoption was came out of their experiences dealing with their clients or patients. And so it was biased towards what people reported about their experiences that they were pained by. And so what we knew in air quotes about adoption was based on a skewed sample of adopted people. And finally, a psychologist named David Brzezinski thought, we should have some research that is based on community samples, not families or individuals who are struggling, but what about all the other families that are out there? And that really started um, representative sampled, representatively sampled adoption research, which can, can, disconfirmed some of the truths that had been out there based on clinical samples. And what they found was that the vast majority of adoptees were doing quite well within the normal limits, normal range, and families were satisfied with their experience. So there is a whole network, an international network of adopted adoption researchers that I've been involved with. There, there have been seven international meetings on adoption research, and I've been at six of them. I missed the very first one. I've presented research that I've done at those meetings, and those meetings, while they acknowledge and try to understand common difficulties in adoption, basically the main, the strongest message that comes out of them is that open communication in adoptive families goes farther than most people think to make the normative challenges manageable. But families need the support Parents need the reassurance that just because, well, parents often will say, um, we think our child is fine with adoption. They don't bring it up. And if they brought it up, we would be happy to talk about it. But 
the kids are thinking about it. I mean, we know adoptive kids wonder about it. They think about it. They are curious and it's part of their identity and who they are. So there may be people in their life that are sort of figments of their imaginations. And some of them want to know and some of them don't want to know. There's a complete range of kind of responses to that in kids. And it used to be that it was thought to be unhealthy to not be curious. And no, wait, sorry. It used to be that it was thought it was unhealthy to be curious. Oh, mm -hmm. Now it's shifted with greater openness about adoption. It's shifted. So there might be something wrong if you don't want to know. But mm -hmm. the fact is that there are also, there are in, there's an individual kind of orientation to that. And there are developmental changes about that. There are ages when kids, particularly adolescents, when kids are more curious and they're sort of wrestling with what does this mean about me? What are these other people mean about me? You know, and, and now in this age of open adoption, there are more in many domestic adoptions, kids are more likely to have some information. But and so I because my I have I developed a workshop that is called Inquisitive Minds, and it is focused on helping parents feel prepared for the earliest conversations about adoption so that they are tuned into their child and what their child wonders about and asks them about and that they can respond with confidence and be encouraging of their child's questions and feelings. Um, it's loaded for some kids and it's not loaded for other kids. And what you said about parents can find resources that don't necessarily click for them <clears throat> and often they override their own intuition because the experts say, at this age, my child needs to know this, but not necessarily. I mean, kids don't only learn by talking. So there are many things that they could be picking up on and absorbing and weaving into their identity that are not based on conversations. Um, so it's really, it, it troubles me when parents override their intuition because they know their kids best. I mean, you, you know that parent, parents of canines or felines know their animal best. And even if a breed has a reputation, that particular dog doesn't necessarily fit that reputation. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I, I think that it's, it's when my daughter was young, I can remember going, being a psychologist who knew the research, I can remember vacillating between she's fine and she's going to do fine. And, but what about this? Like, what about kids struggling with this? And I've sort of flipped back and forth in terms of my mindset about registering how things were going versus, okay, but at that point, she's 34 now. So this was, uh, this was bef way before Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, and, but the thing I wanted to say is adopted people are about two to maybe 4% of the population, depending on how you, how narrowly you define it. 
that is, I, I calculated this once for a chapter that I was writing about adoption. And I applied this to my daughter's high school, which is the largest high school in the state of Michigan, was. Uh, based on that, those figures in a class of 30 students, maybe one and a half of them might be adopted. And the trickiest part is you might not know because they might not ever feel comfortable acknowledging that. So in some communities, people will often say, oh, we have a lot of adoption in our community. They might know other adoptive families, but they don't probably have nearly as much in terms of relative to the non-adoptive families as they think. Mm -hmm. So what I want to do online is to create an, a virtual community for adoptive parents so that they can check out other people's experiences. They can say, what does it mean that we're struggling with this at this age? Um, and and take, take some of that worry and put it out there for conversation in a in a in an accurate way. Mm -hmm. to counter some I love of that. that. Yeah, it is really interesting. I think what resonates with me the most, well, almost the most ranks up there um, <laughs> with what you just said is really just how much um, parenting, whether it's a dog or a child, is really about the individual in front of you rather than the idea of what you think it's supposed to be, right? Whether because a five-year-old typically does X, Y, and Z that mine will, it's kind of absurd. I mean, it's nice to have a benchmark. It's nice to have yeah. some, yeah. you know, some data that says, oh, I suppose it's about time to start talking or being able to use the toilet or whatever, just because mm -hmm. you may not know anything. So it's great to just have some idea ballpark. Mm -hmm. um, but very much the individuality of the person and that development is on a continuum mm -hmm. um, that just because you're a certain age doesn't mean you're at that same developmental stage, right? Not all two-year-olds are created equal. Mm -hmm. um, and same with dogs, you know, some dogs don't hit social maturity until they're four or five years old, while others hit social maturity around the age of two. And mm -hmm. behavior can shift significantly mm -hmm. at social maturity in dogs. And so, um, our expectations have to vary. They have to, they have to adjust to accommodate where each individual actually is mm -hmm. on that continuum. Mm -hmm. I guess one thing that would be really helpful to the people seeing this or listening to this would be any tips you would have from the parent support perspective of coping with stress, coping with uncertainty. Um, because you know, there's uncertainty with everything. You know, mm -hmm. my adoption process was all over the place. You know, we adopted our son from Guatemala. And mm -hmm. so it was somewhat predictable, but then you get in line essentially through our adoption agency, you work your way through the queue. And it was sort of one of those, like when the next baby's born and you're at the top of the line, that's your kid. It's not, it was different. It wasn't like we were chosen by a particular family. Mm -hmm. um, we were matched with one baby and then the birth mother changed her mind and decided to keep him. And I was really sad for 
about an hour. And then I, I was really happy for her that she got to choose. Right. And that just made me so happy for her that, um, that she was in a situation that she felt that that was the best choice for her and that she wasn't being coerced to do something that she didn't want to do. And, and I thought, well, that's good. That's going to be good for everybody. Right. And then it was back in the queue. We went, we didn't know how long that would be. And then there were some government delays with paperwork. And so it was just all very confusing. And I was impatient and feeling extraordinarily maternal. I actually did what I would advise everyone else in the world not to do. (laughs) I adopted a dog while I was waiting because I didn't know what to do with my maternal energy that was just like Mm. bursting at the seams. I had Mm. another child already. My daughter, um, they're 20 months apart, but Mm. Mm-hmm. He came home when he was five months old. So there, she was about two when he got home from Guatemala. Um, so I had her and obviously I was loving on her, but I, I had this, you know, mm-hmm. urging, I don't know, my body was doing something crazy. And so I adopted a dog in the meantime, which was kind of absurd now that I know what I know. Um, we got incredibly lucky and this dog was a saint. He was so good. And I, I was lucky. I was absolutely lucky. It could have been a disaster because I didn't know anything. Um, But my stress levels were all over the place and I was not my best self um, Mm -hmm. because I would, I would get impatient and I would get frustrated. And do you have strategies for somebody who either has their baby and is, I think, I don't know, maybe you have a name for it. There there's postpartum depression when you have a child. And I went through that when my son was adopted and came home, I tanked and I was so upset that I tanked because I was so excited. I was so excited. I adopted a dog for goodness sake. Like, but I really struggled. And part of that had to do with his developmental delays that I didn't know about, you know, and that it was hard to bond with him at first. And, um, so there, there are this, there's a huge range of emotions, whether it's, Mm -hmm that you're waiting for something to happen or you don't feel the way you thought you were going to feel once it does happen, because there's mm-hmm. been such a runway leading up to it. Mm-hmm. Um, just any tips on just coping? I guess that's very broad. That's a very broad question. I apologize because we could talk for another two hours, which we don't have time to do, but just anything, just any nugget, yeah, yeah. one little gem, and then they can well, take your class I, you for know, more But I think that, um, what you said about the range of possibilities and and healthy possibilities for how it might go is just really important for parents to keep in mind because they 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 do put a lot of pressure on themselves and especially when that with the misunderstandings about attachment Parents are likely to feel like, oh my gosh, it's not happening. And there's a critical window and we're not, we're going to be outside of it. And then what is that going to mean? And there, there's, there is just undue strain um, over that. So they, they have to, I think, keep in mind 
that there are many, many variations, all of which can lead to a satisfying and healthy outcome for you and your child. And there's much of it that just takes time. And that everybody, there's, there's pressure on everybody. There may be pressure on other kids who are already in the family. And there is a contagion to the worry and uncertainty that can just complicate things even more. Um, but I, I worked with a family once who had adopted both of their daughters, but the second one had had a very extremely painful and abrupt transition from the foster family that she had been living with because it was so painful for them to give her up. And the mother, when I, when they came to work with me, I think she'd been with them maybe for five or six months, the mother and, and the daughter was, had grown very close to the dad, but had been keeping her distance from the mom. And the mom was very distressed. The, the, the older child had special needs, so she required a lot of attention and, and um, had healthy health needs. But this mom was beside herself at feeling like it isn't happening. This is, this is foreboding something, you know, a really bad outcome. Well, when, when I, you have to be as a, as a professional dealing with situations like this, I am always curious about the story because there are usually clues in the story that explain what is happening. And in this case, the clues were that they adopted from Latin America. The dad was very Nordic looking, tall, blonde. The mom was short, brown hair, mm -hmm. and undoubtedly looked very much like the foster mom. And this little girl could not connect. I mean, she was grieving the mom she lost. And I thought that her mom was just too reminiscent of the mom she lost. So the mom kept trying to reach her and make it work. And I said to her, you need to give this time. You need to let her come to you. And she, it, she relaxed. And it took a little more time, maybe four to six weeks, when she backed off and said, okay, I'm going to let dad do be the main attachment figure right now for her because he doesn't remind her of anybody. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be, and on our team, we'll have a little bit of, you know, dad and her, sister and me, and we'll just play this out. But mom's anxiety came down like that. And it all started straightening itself out. I mean, this little girl grew incredibly attached to her. She just needed her own time. So hopefully stories like that. And that's, that's the reason that there needs to be community for adoptive parents. Because, and that's the reason I shared in my clinical work, I was always sharing stories without uh, totally anonymously. Nobody knew who I was talking about. Sharing stories. And 
just normalizing all these variations on how it can go. And, and they, and you don't have to jump to the conclusion that because you're facing a challenge, it's a sign of trouble. You know, it's, it's really interesting because I also have a membership for parents with dogs. It's very similar to what you're doing. And some of our members, you know, are really open about talking about how hard it has been to maybe bring home a dog into their family with existing children because they had an idea of what they thought that was going to look like. My, the dog and kids are going to be best friends and it's going to be just like Lassie and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and then there's regret, you know, then sometimes the parents are thinking, oh my gosh, I think I made a mistake. I am having trouble bonding with the dog or the dog is afraid of my husband or the dog is afraid of me or the dog actually had trauma that I didn't know about or whatever. It's so similar. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't at all mean to offend anyone um, for comparing kids and dogs, but parenting and loving hard is the same. It really Mm -hmm. is. And, Mm -hmm. um, and the, and the parenting journey is the same. And I think one of the messages that I'm getting from you, and I'm finding this really validating on a personal level as well, is just how important it is for families to find someone they trust, whether it's you or whether it's me, that has a unique area of expertise in the thing that may be the most troubling to them to help them get through it. Because I really do understand dog behavior and I can translate that for people mm-hmm. knowing how parents get through the day because I've done it. Mm-hmm. And I was a teacher for 16 years. So I saw a lot of parents doing it. So mm-hmm. I did it and I saw lots of families doing it. Um, so it's just such an interesting thing because I think you and I each offer a really unique perspective to say, hey, okay, I know getting ready for school is the hardest time of the day because everyone needs you at the same time. Let's talk about this. Here are two quick strategies that will take some pressure off your plate because you can't be your best parenting self if you feel like your head's going to pop off, (laughs) you know? And so what you're offering and what I'm offering are both just relief. I think that's what we're Mm -hmm. trying to do is just help people feel seen, help people feel understood so that they can feel physically and emotionally safer as they navigate whatever it is they're navigating. For me, it's keeping kids and dogs safe, but parents sane. Mm -hmm. And for you, it's helping parents navigate this process of, of getting to know the unknown and to navigate the unpredictable. Right. So it's so interesting. And to remain curious, sorry to interrupt. Yes. But to remain curious for those kinds of clues that give you a sense, if you put yourself in the child's shoes or the dog's shoes and think to yourself, okay, how did this creature's environment just change? And what might that feel like to them? So that if, you know, if, if a dog is, is growling suddenly, you think about, okay, when does that happen? What's going on? How are others around that? And how is the rest of the team responding at that moment? I'm giggling um, because I have I have a checklist that's exactly what you just said, which is why did your dog growl at your toddler? 
and it takes you through, did this happen? Did this happen? Did this happen? Because you just get emotional about it. Oh my gosh, this terrible thing mm -hmm. just happened. But I want people to be curious and aware of what's happening surrounding them. What could have caused it? Let's take a break and let's be grateful that the dog told you something was bothering them, right? Mm -hmm. Let's be grateful mm -hmm. for that communication. Exactly. I love that. Get curious. I think, yeah. I think that's going to be the name of this episode. Get curious, <laughs> but I think it's really great. I'm going to have to sign off. I have a client okay. soon. What I would love for you to do is tell people where they can find you. And then what I will do is I will provide links to any resources you would like. I can link to that organization you mentioned with the conferences that you presented at anything that you would like to share articles, okay. anything. Um, you okay. can send me a list of those and I will share them as well. Okay. So my, the way to find out more about my business, which is called Kinestry is chemistry as in sounds like chemistry, but is really sort of the science of and artistry of creating belonging in your family um, is kinestryadoption.com backslash contact would be a way to get on my mailing list. And one of the things that I'm doing is a series that I call adoption. Did you know that 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 question mark? where I provide little tidbits of accurate sort of research-based information about adoption that will, that will alert parents about things to think about, but also sort of challenge some of those myths and assumptions and negative stereotypes that are out there that you know float in the air around adoptive families and just need to be named, basically. So I would love it if people would, you know, wanted to hear more about that. And, and I, and I send emails about other content too. So Good. that would be Well, fun. you're, you're a combined, I'm mixing up my words, a kind and compassionate person who just takes the edge off already. I feel that. So I think you'll be a really great resource for anyone who has questions about this or who is navigating the adoption process. Um, and between the two of us, we've got you covered if you've got a dog in the house as well, or if you're thinking about adding one as well. Yes, um, yes. Thank you, Chris. You're, I really, really you're do. You're very welcome. It. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review on your favorite podcast app. If you're a parent and you would love someone you could talk to about your kids and dogs at any time and be part of a great community of other like-minded parents, please visit www.safekidsanddogs.com so you can learn more about the Pooch Parenting Society. If you're a dog professional and would love to build your confidence working with families who have children and dogs, I would love to invite you to join the Pooch Parenting Coach Collective. To get more information or to join the waitlist, please visit www.safekidsanddogs.com coach collective. I would love to have you inside the community so that you can say yes to more clients. Take care.